What up, world? It's your past first point guard and Blazer beat writer Mike Richmond, and you are listening to another episode of Locked on Blazers, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, available wherever podcasts are sold. Guys, we have almost news in the summer. A great day when almost NBA news happens. Damian Lillard is officially out of the FIBA 19 World Cup, as predicted by many, probably. Also, it's Brandon Roy's 35th birthday. We'll talk about that in the second segment. And finally, the NBA is acknowledging sort of its rampant tampering issue. Will they do anything? Spoiler alert, if you don't make it to segment three, they won't do anything. But I'll talk a lot about that. But first, let's start with the news of the day, because we got to celebrate any late July news. Damien Lord officially, I don't know, officially, reportedly from Shamstrania of The Athletic, is out for the FIBA World Cup 2019. He becomes the ninth of the original 20 players invited that have dropped out. Uh, so here's a fun one. DeMar DeRozan, who was like not on any of the lists I saw leading up to it in the, over the last 10 days, he announced he's withdrawing. So a player I didn't even know was on the team dropped out. That's the beauty of this tournament. The top tier and even the B-list tier guys don't want to do it. It's increasingly look like looking like this will be a younger group or um, sort of unproven veteran type group. Shout out to Thad Young, who I think is really good, but um, isn't an all-star level player. ESPN pointed this out, and I think it's worth noting before we get into some sort of specifics about Dame. Uh, it's not uncommon for large amounts of withdrawals from, during World Cup, FIBA World Cup years. Um, that's pretty much par for the course for American basketball players. In 2010, Team USA had 12 new players from the uh, 2008 Olympic team. And then at the last World Cup in 2014, they had 11 new faces coming off the 2012 Olympic team. So people gear up for the Olympics. They show up big time, honor the Olympics. They love it. I've, I talked about how the how t- Team USA in the last podcast, uh, how Team USA kind of made it, put pressure on guys heading into the 2008 Olympics to start making a stronger commitment to FIBA. Um, and even then... They only it only became so strong, and now since it's become so commonplace for guys to pull out, they're just in a position where um, it's expected that the Damian Lillards of the world will eventually decline. Um, this isn't a, this isn't a surprise though. Uh, I, I thank goodness timing wise, I got slightly ahead of this news. I hope you listen to the podcast that came out on Monday. Uh, that was July twenty seconds twenty second podcast. If you didn't. Um, there's still some great quality Mike Richmond audio content, um, albeit a little bit outdated because I was speculating on whether, you know, pros and cons of Dame joining Team USA. Um, he decided not to, um, and, and, and I don't think that's a surprise. And uh, let me rehash a little bit of what I laid out yesterday just to explain that. Mostly, a lot of it certainly is a timing thing. The tournament starts uh, there's some tune-up games in Australia in late August, and then the tournament runs from the August 31st to September 15th. But even then, there's a there's a commitment that happens before they go to Australia, where guys have to meet in Vegas and go through uh, a couple days of training camp, and then they play a tune-up game in either Vegas or LA. I, I can't remember, but whatever in the United States, 
on the West Coast before they head out to Australia. So it's basically a month of commitment. Um, what that would have interfered with was something that Dame had already mentioned publicly, and that was working out with new teammates. Uh, he said he, he really wanted to get guys in the gym in September and work out before training camp starts, get to know each other, not just um, know each other's games, which I think is really valuable, but know each other personally. Spend, he, he, wanted to, he said specifically he wants to spend time with guys and like know their nicknames and things like that. So you just like are familiar with them when things get going in October because once the NBA season starts, it just drags on endlessly for nine months. Um, endlessly. Uh, I know that's like a really corny beat writer to complain about how long the NBA season is. I love the NBA season. I love that it's eight months of the year. I miss it when it's not around, guys. That's why I'm recording this podcast for you on a July evening. But in addition to just the timing, the September 15th timing, uh, the... NBA preseason starts like the first week of October. I think the Blazers play uh, uh, their first preseason game October 7th. So that wouldn't give Dame a ton of time. That's basically three weeks when he gets back, when he would get back from FIBA to to get going with everybody and and, and get familiar and, and do the damn thing. So the timing thing is is certainly a major issue for this tournament, for, for American NBA players, no doubt about it. Um, and also there's just, it's a limited risk versus reward. I mean, the, the payoff is that you get some prestige of winning a gold medal for team USA and the risk is all the obvious injury stuff. And also just wearing your body out, putting more miles on, on the odometer. Uh, in the end, Dame chose, you know, focusing on the NBA season and resting his body maybe a little bit more than playing in international competition would, um, would demand of him. And, uh, I think it is not a surprise and also his right. Uh, I know someone tweeted at me, I forget your name off the top of my head, but an Australian listener who really wanted to go see uh, Dame when he was in those tune-up games prior to the FIBA World Cup starting. Sorry, dude. Sorry for your, sorry for your kids that you won't see him. Maybe spend an outrageous sum of money to come to Portland, Oregon. <laughs> That's a terrible option. I'm sorry I mentioned it. But yeah, Dame's out. But speaking of Portland legends, today, as I'm recording this, you probably aren't going to listen to this until the day after it, but July 23rd, Brandon Roy's 35th birthday. So in the second segment, I will get a little bit nostalgic about one of my favorite Blazers of all time, Brandon Roy. But before I do that, I want to remind you guys, as I often do, That when you're driving to work or from work or just around town, all you have to do is tell your smart device to play podcast Locked on Blazers, and I will be right there with you for the drive. Make it a part of your daily routine every time you hop in your car. Tell that smart speaker, play podcast Locked on Blazers. All right, so Dame's out of Team USA, and the other big news of the day isn't really news at all. It's an anniversary. The good folks at Locked On Blazers would like to extend a very happy 35th birthday to one of the Northwest's most beloved sons, Brandon Roy, celebrating his birthday today. It is uh, memories of Brandon Roy for me, at least, and I imagine for you if you are a Blazer fan or if you're just listening because you're like my dad or something. Hi, Dad. Um, Maybe you don't think of them as bittersweet, but whenever I think of... B-Roy, it's bittersweet for me. You know, five brief seasons, a three-time All-Star, and then gone from Portland at 26, out of the league at 28. 
I moved to Portland in the fall of 2006, which is also when Brandon Roy and LaMarcus Aldridge moved to Portland from Texas and or Washington and Texas, respectively. So I kind of grew into being uh, more of an NBA fan as that team, the B-Roy era, began. Um, I'd always been a basketball fan, but I wasn't, I didn't live in a NBA community as a youngster. So when I moved here as an 18 year old, moved to Portland as an 18 year old, I kind of, um, I'd always been a huge basketball head, but, um, B-Roy helped me like really love the NBA, find love for the NBA. I, I mean, that 32 and 50 team, his rookie year with, um, Zach Randolph just endlessly jab stepping at the free throw line. I love that team. Love it. But for my money, the best Brandon Roy was the 2008-2009 season when he was just absolutely at his peak. Averaged 22.6 points per game, 4.7 rebounds, 5.1 assists, shot 48% from the floor, 37.7% from three, and he was very clearly one of the 10 best players in the NBA. He was just so, so, so good. And then he was basically gone by the almost by the end of next season— it was over. And that's the bittersweet part is that his star burned so bright. And when he got to his peak, it just ended quickly. It just, it, the, the backside of his career just ne- did not exist. So here are my top Brandon Roy moments. Uh, some of the, most of these are the pretty cliche ones. If you have a Brandon Roy moment that is not on this list that you love, holler at your boy at Mike G. Rich on Twitter. Uh, I guess these are in random order, except for the last one, which is my absolute favorite. Um, and I'll just read them in the order I wrote them down. His 52 points against Phoenix on TNT in December of 2008. Uh, his career high. He was just balling in that game. And it was on national TV. It was against a really, really, really good Phoenix team. Um, you know, the the threes he hits to get 49 and then 52, or maybe it's 46 and then 49 and he got 52 at the, at the free throw line, but those late three-pointers to kind of ice the game on the give-and-go from, you know, give it to Steve Blake and get it right back. It's just iconic for me, um, and it was just proof of how good he was. You know, against one of the elite teams in the West, he drops 50 to kind of will the Blazers, you know, drag the Blazers to a to a big, meaningful December win. I don't know if there's many of those meaningful December wins, but I remember it feeling important at the time. The next one on my list, um, and this is the same type of thing, is the 2009 Christmas Day game against uh, the Denver Nuggets and Carmelo Anthony. And it was basically just like B-Roy versus Mello. Um, This Nuggets team made the Western Conference Finals. They were awesome. And you know, Brandon had 41, and it was the it was the late game on Christmas, the West Coast late game. I believe it's the last time the Blazers played in a Christmas Day game, but that's off the top of my head. I'm sure I'm wrong about that, but it, but they certainly haven't played in, in many since. Um, oh, they actually played in one this year, but they got blown out, so we all forgot it. But prior to that, that was one of their most their most recent big Christmas Day games. Um, and B-Roy had 41. He was just so good going against Melo, who was, um, you know, one of, like an MVP-level player in 2009. Uh, I remember that because it was the same type of thing as that um, Suns game. It was a very much, I'm here, I'm on the map type of thing. Um, and the way that season ended for B-Roy, um, it, it, in retrospect, the Christmas Day game stands out even brighter. 
Uh, a game I attended in February 2009, a few months later, uh, Brandon Roy hit a game winner against the Knicks. Uh, it's I like this for a variety of reasons. One, that Knicks team was not very good, um, and, and the Blazers just couldn't put them away. It was just like, I think Nate Rob went nuts in that game. Crypto Nate, it was in the Crypto Nate era. Um, he was, they were going nuts, but the Blazers got the ball at the end of the game. You knew it was going to Brandon Roy. You also knew he was going to go left. The dude always went left. He was just so smooth. He goes left, defense collapses. He leans back right, swoops underhand scoop with his right hand, glass, game. It was just, I mean, it's just vintage Brandon Roy. Just absolutely vintage Brandon Roy. And there I was in the 300 level as a fan. The next one is this classic one, and I remember it for a variety of reasons. Um, it's the game winner versus Houston, which uh, happened in early November, but the way Blazers fans remember it, it happened during the NBA Finals. And look, I'm being mean to you guys with that line, but I do think Blazer fans tend to overrate that moment. Um, it happened in November. It happened like the first week of November. This is not a, a playoff game. Um, it wasn't even a late-season game. Uh, back then it was like 10 days into the year. It's probably the fifth game of the NBA season or something like that. Uh, but but I think there's like this tendency to, to uh, compare it to Dame's .9 shot. That was the first, the, like literally ended a playoff series and, and was the Blazers' first uh, series victory in 14 years and was just, and it's like the best shot in the history of the franchise and comparing a Brandon Roy moment from an early November game um, kind of misses the point but it was awesome and it was awesome for more than just hitting a 40 footer to ice a game against a a rival Uh, prior to that shot uh, B-Roy you know drove hard and hit a a pull-up jumper to give the Blazers what looked like a win it looked like he'd won it already I remember him going all the way to the baseline that's kind of how my my the memory of my brain is crystallized, but I, when I watch the replay today, he doesn't even, um, he doesn't get that deep. He hits like a mid-range pull-up, which is perfect. It's vintage Brandon Roy. He was so smooth. That's what part of the reason that I really loved him as a player is that his pull-up game and his ability to get to his spots and rise up over a defender was just so fun. So he hits what looks like a game winner, and then, of course, the Blazers commit just a horrific and one foul on Yao Ming. Dude's like an 85% free throw shooter, adds the N1, Rockets take the lead. What an incredible and hilarious meltdown. Um, also, throwing the ball into the post with um, game on the line, something you don't see too much in the modern NBA. But that's a side note. So then, of course, Brandon Roy comes down, hits that 40-footer, and then there's that iconic image of him grabbing the top of his jersey one way and the bottom of his jersey the other way and screaming as he untucks it near midcourt and runs around. Um, that moment is really special, but it's special because it was yet again on one of these moments where Brandon Roy just do- did what he does. Be clutch as hell. Which brings me to the last moment. And I think the other ones I listed you can take really in almost any order. And I'm okay with them as singular Brandon Roy moments. But this one is is the Brandon Roy moment. And if you've been screaming at your phone or at your earbuds um, waiting for me to get to this one, I'm, I'm there, guys. Game 4, 2011 against the Dallas Mavericks. Brandon Roy goes 18 in the fourth quarter and brings the Blazers back from down 21 to win this game. It's... There are so many iconic shots. Uh, the driving bank when he hits a straightaway bank. The pivot off his left foot pull-up. 
another pull-up three, the and one four-point play. I mean, he was just magnificent. But why this moment is special to me and why it stands out to me and why I appreciate it is because of the finality of the moment. You knew or you could feel even as it happened that uh, this was the last he, Brandon, had to give. Uh, you know, he was deep into the knee trouble game by then. We knew it was, he was dealing with bone-on-bone injuries and, it was, and playing without a meniscus and all, you know, and, and it, it was just a matter of time. And that moment in the spring of 2011 felt like his last, the last thing he could give to a fan base, to a city, to a franchise and say, here, thanks. Here's what I got. And he gave it all and was magnificent. It is an absolutely brilliant performance. Um, there's reporting, I, th- I believe it's from Jason Quick, that Rich Cho had even uh, considered shutting Brandon Roy down for that playoff game, just putting him on the inactive list because he was ineffective, quite frankly. He was ineffective after that in the series. And it's hard for star players who lose some physical gifts to transition to being a guy, just a guy. And Brandon obviously struggled with that, was just losing his physical gifts. You know, less than two years before, he'd been one of the clear top 10 players in the league. It looked like someone who's going to maybe... um, chase MVP trophies and stuff like that. And then here he is as, you know, a a bit player and a guy who's struggling just to get on the court. But that fourth quarter is magnificent. It was um, the image of him walking off the court with Marcus Camby's got his arm around him and he's holding up Brandon Roy's hand. And it was kind of just like a, you know, I think Armand Johnson's in the back of that photo chasing him down. Uh, but it's, it's, there was something, there was a finality to that. There was like a, there was like a send-off special moment to it. That, um, it's why it's my favorite Brandon Roy moment, because it's bittersweet. And his whole, my whole memory of him is very bittersweet. And I think that, um, when you're just like, whoa, he was so, so, so good. Wow, this is like a type of thing you can understand history in real time. Like, wow, we're going to remember this game forever. And then also the bigger picture, we'll probably never see Brandon do anything like this ever again. Um, it was really special. I was, I had covered the team like as a media member very sparingly during that playoff run. Um, I did work in the media world in Portland. Then I worked for, OregonLive.com. I think I covered, you know, like five or six practices, but um, I didn't go to the games yet. I, you know, I, I, I watched them on TV. I covered high school sports. In fact, <laughs> I, I was mostly uh, out doing my actual job when the games happened. Um, but I'll, I'll always remember that afternoon, an afternoon game too. I think it makes it even more special. Uh, my last memory, Brandon Roy, that I want to share before uh, we move on to the next segment. It's kind of a bittersweet one, um, but it's one that I always remember. I was in the building for this one too, uh, it as as a fan yet again. But it's the uh, 2010 game against the Phoenix Suns. Um, it's that game four against Phoenix in Portland. Uh, he had had knee surgery, meniscus surgery, just ten days earlier, and he decided to come back ten days after the surgery. Um, and as he makes his way to the to the scorers table, the stadium just starts to go nuts. There's just a just a absolute palpable buzz um, teeming through the stadium. And I think Jared Bayless like immediately steps into a three pointer. Um, I didn't look this game back up like the other ones, but my memory is that Jared Bayless is like 
first of all, he's like, got to shoot it because I'm about to get subbed out. But he also, you know, he he's feeding off the energy of this, of the arena, of all the magic that that's in the arena. Um, and the Blazers like go on like a 15-0 run or a 15-3 run while Brandon is at the scorer's table, you know, and it's like, and they go on to win this game against, um, against uh, the Suns team that ended up making the Western Conference Finals. And uh, why I want to mention that one is because it's like, this is part of the memory of Brandon Roy is that there's a lot of sad things with it too like that moment where you know like this dude should not come back and destroy his knees but he know he's going to do it because he is a certain way there's like there's this it's um you know whether you're rooting for him or just covering him as a media member there is something um i don't know if depressing is the right word but there's 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 something um that you really feel when you when you kind of see the inevitable happening right in front of you um and i'll always that's you know part of the brandon roy legacy and memory Guys, thanks for indulging me in that segment. I like Brandon Roy a lot. He's one of my favorite basketball players of all time. Like I said, someone who got me to love the NBA. In the uh, third segment, we'll talk about something that maybe makes people not like the NBA. It's tampering. The league has a tampering problem. It's had a tampering problem. And maybe they're going to do something about it. So that's what we'll talk about in the third segment. But before I do that, I'll remind you guys... That for the latest takes on NBA free agency, follow all of the Locked On Podcast Network hosts on one Twitter feed. That's at Locked On NBA Net. It's an awesome way to get all the latest opinions on the entire NBA offseason from the local experts. So check them out on Twitter at Locked On NBA Net. Welcome back. Still Locked On Blazers, still Mike Richmond, still Pass First Point Guard. So we talked Dame pulling out Team USA. I gave you a retrospective um, trip down nostalgia lane for Brandon Roy's 35th birthday. Happy birthday, B-Roy, a Blazer legend gone too soon. Gone from the league, still alive, living in Seattle. But let's talk about some current things. Let's hop back into the present to talk about the NBA's tampering issue. ESPN did uh, some interesting reporting today. You can check that out on their website. I'm sure you know where to find it. But... Uh, basically during summer league at the NBA board of governors meeting, the board of governors, um, brought, uh, to bear with the league that they would like, um, something, some investigation to be launched into tampering with the league, uh, particularly, um, centering around the contracts that are agreed to in those opening minutes of June 30th, um, the like, you know, there's like a billion dollars of contracts signed in the first hour of free agency. How could possibly teams and agents and players have agreed to these deals without speaking before the moratorium moratorium ended? Um, and that's basically the problem. The problem is that the league year starts on July 1st or starts, yeah, starts on July 1st, but there's... And you can't sign contracts till the 6th, but even before the league year starts, there's... A dead period of about six days after the NBA Finals when all eyes have now shifted to free agency. And the moratorium, it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It'll and, and I frankly don't think this is a problem. Here's why I think it's a problem. I think it is hard to 
to lure a casual fan into the league where they feel like players and the star players in particular are going to constantly change teams all the time and they're constantly going to go team up in big markets with their pals and um, you'll never get any there won't be the continuity that you want to be able to be a casual fan and sort of jump into the league and say, oh, I remember this from three years ago. I don't actually think tampering and what tampering brings, which is this sort of constant player movement and guys scheming to team up in other places, is bad for diehard NBA fans. I actually think it's a it's a hook for people who really love the league because the drama and the the soap opera and the um, constant player shifting is what keeps you involved and keeps you uh, keeps really diehard fans hooked into the league. I actually think it's a good, I think what tampering brings scheming by agents and players is a positive feature for guys, for guys, for people who really love the NBA. But I can see where it's a problem where attracting casual fans. So I think the league will do something about it. They'll change the moratorium in some way. They'll, um, they can police agents sort of talking to each other, but then there'll be that Contavious Caldwell Pope signs with the Lakers. So Rich Paul can talk to the Lakers whenever he wants because he has a client on the team. It's like an easy workaround and any agent can do that. Not just people who work at clutch sports, the persona non grata of the NBA as it stands this off season. Um, I think you can police that at least to some extent. I don't think you can police players talking to each other. On Shams Tarani's podcast on The Athletic, I'm not sure what that podcast is called or I'd give it a proper plug, but you can find it if you're looking for it. Um, Spencer did when he told him a story that in December of last season, Kyrie Irving called him and said, New York could be pretty crazy next year. I don't know what the league can do to police Kyrie Irving from A, knowing his contract situation, B, considering his future before it comes up, and C, calling a friend on the phone. I don't, I don't think you can stop the player-to-player tampering. I think you could make more specific rules that prevents it, but I, it just, that just seems like something you can't stop. So what you got what you got to change is the weird dead period between the playoffs ending and free agency starting when, when agents and teams are very clearly negotiating. And ESPN, they, they touched on this in the article, there aren't going to be punishments. No one's getting fined, no one's losing draft picks, yada, yada, yada. What's going to happen is they're going to change the rules. That's what comes of this. But some funny anecdotes before, uh, just to wrap this up on, on the tampering front. One, Brian Winhurst of uh, ESPN reported that the Celtics were like super heated that they felt that... Um, the Philadelphia 76ers tampered with Al Horford and prevented their chances of negotiating. Celtics thought they would get a chance to offer Al Horford a five-year contract and um, get their shot and pitch in free agency. And instead, Horford just closed down. He said, I'm not going to negotiate with you. I've already got a deal on the table and signed a four-year, $119 million deal with the Sixers. And the Celtics were apparently heated about that. These same Celtics, mind you, signed Kemba Walker to a max deal in the opening stages of free agency. So, like, I don't feel too bad for y'all. Seems like you can do tampering, but you hate to get tampered with. It's kind of the breaks. The other extremely funny anecdote is uh, in a press conference, Sean Marks, the GM of the Brooklyn Nets, said that he didn't find about Kevin, find out about Kevin Durant deciding to join the team until Kevin Durant posted on Instagram. 
listen, Sean, I think you're a really good GM and you've done an admirable job building this Nets team from scratch, but you are lying like hell, dog. That is a lie. And what you did is a smart thing to avoid a tampering fine. Perhaps you're just a genius. Knew not to get fined. Knew not to, not to have to write a big old check to the league and said that you found out on Instagram. Hell no, I don't believe that. But respect to Sean Marks for lying the right way, understanding the tampering rules. Really, I don't see tampering as a problem in the league. I mean, I know that it's a problem, but how can you stop LeBron James from teaming up with his pals when no one can sign longer than a four or five year deal? The league has been trending this way since basically 1999 and really in, in early 2000s and the when the CBA got renegotiated and they made the longest contract lengths four and five years. This is just this, the league rot this. The, the players are on short-term deals. The owners don't want long-term deals because they they can't help themselves, but to hand out big, long, bad contracts. And so here's what you have. You have players with a, a ton more agency and more and let and more flexibility to quickly get out of contracts And a bunch of dudes with cell phones and they can quickly chat with each other whenever they want. I don't think tampering is a problem. I do think the league can maybe make it less of an obvious issue. They're not going to fix it, but they can maybe negate some of the... um, They can change the rules so the things that are tampering now aren't illegal. That's basically how this ends. Guys... I really, really, really appreciate you listening. Tell your friends about Lockdown Blazers. Tell them they can get it wherever they download podcasts. That's on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and also on the Himalaya app. It is late July and there keeps being NBA news. So we're going to keep doing podcasts. Come back soon. I'll talk to you then.